Welcome to the Royal Shakespeare Company. Are you enjoying the show? You're joining us for Interval Drinks, a podcast by the Royal Shakespeare Company in which we talk to artists who inspire us. I just like pretending and dressing up. I really can't put it any more simple than that. I am nothing but rewriting. The very first draft that I do looks like Jack Nicholson in The Shining wrote it. Catching up in the interval this week, we have actor Alfred Clay with Lucian Msamata. Every single mistake I've ever made, lesson I've learned, has been in the full glare of the public. You name it, it has happened to me. Have you collected your drinks? Then let's begin. Hi, what's up everyone and welcome to Interval Drinks, a Royal Shakespeare Company podcast. It's really a space where current company members get the chance to have a drink and a chat with past or present RSC artists who inspire them. I'm Alfred Clay and I'm currently in Phil Breen's production of The Comedy of Errors and today I'll be talking with an artist whose works span it all. On TV you may have seen him in Luther. Game of Thrones, His Dark Materials, or more recently, the gripping Gangs of London, starring alongside a number of recent RSC collaborators. For the RSC, he's given us Pericles in Pericles, directed by Dominic Cook, and Iago in Iqbal Khan's 2015 production of Othello. This man is an actor, director, writer, company founder, theatre facilitator, content creator. Today, I am speaking with Lucian Msumati. Hello, sir. How are you? floating. What an intro. Okay, let's start with uh, your drink of choice. The most important question <laughs> of, of the podcast, your interval <laughs> drink of choice. Well, there are two drinks of choice and it all depends on the company I'm keeping. Sure, sure. If I have to be quote unquote on show, yes. when I'm in schmooze mode, when I'm you know entertaining <laughs> guests, being on best behavior, then a nice refreshing glass of Prosecco or champagne. Oh, nice, yes. Um, but when I'm sitting back, kicking back, having some good old theatrical entertainment, lager. And what was the, what was the last, uh, last show you had a drink at? The last show I had a drink at was actually the West End reemerge season. Okay. Where I saw uh, Anna X, which was directed by Dan Raggett and starred Naban Rizwan and Emma Corrin. And I, I felt very sophisticated in our new COVID-controlled world when I asked the fantastic front of house staff if I could have a beer delivered to my seat. I felt very <laughs> special in the stalls, taking it all in. East is East at the Nationals, the last thing I saw. And before that, well, I've been in, up in Stratford, so... Right. I, I How was know. that experience for you? That was... being. Yeah, that was that was crazy because obviously mm. as soon as we moved to Stratford we had to we had to shut it all down so it's been it's been a long time kind of waiting to to put this this show on and we finally did it in the in the newly built Garden Theatre and man what a what a reception we got it was just brilliant just everyone all the audiences just you know the audience will always be there which was very yeah. inspiring to to know and then yeah. to come back to and, and receive it in yeah. the way that we did was, yeah, it was, it was just brilliant. About a year ago, when things briefly reopened, I had the opportunity to 
uh, be part of the Talking Heads monologues. Okay. At the Bridge Theatre. Yes. Which was a surreal but also beautiful experience. And and what you said about the audience appreciation mm. really struck a chord with me because that's that's one of the, the, the abiding memories I have. Looking out at a socially distanced crowd and seeing a sea of masked faces. Mm. But then the outpouring of affection, the outpouring of love. It's it's sacred, it's it's holy. And that that really did feel like we do something that matters. Yeah. And then I had the opportunity to make the Romeo and Juliet film, speaking of Shakespeare. Of course, yes. Um at the National in the Littleton mm. uh, Theatre, which again, a very, very familiar space to me, but it was freaky to be back in a building that I'm so used to seeing full of life, full of activity. And it was it was quite emotional, Yeah, actually, for a lot of us. It was suddenly this place, the soul of it was gone. Mm. You know, there were ghosts <laughs> seemingly wandering the halls asking for their libation, asking for us to continue, yeah. uh, you know, the, the, the song and the flow. But by the end of it, I think we were able to to capture a little bit of it. Was that originally meant to be a play that you were going to, you know, stage f- for a live so audience? Or It was originally scheduled to be staged on the Olivier. Oh, right. With Jesse Buckley. Uh, with uh, the wonderful Josh, mm. with uh, Fiseo Akinade playing Makushio and Simon Godwin directing. That was the original idea. I wasn't part of the original plan. Okay. Um, but w- when Simon got in touch to say, listen, this is what we're doing and we'd really love you to be involved. We were back in the theatre, but we were doing something different. And it was a chance to sort of breathe life and, and practice our craft again. And we had this wonderful hybrid of rehearsing rehearsing it as a play <laughs> but having no kind of uh, the catharsis of, a, of an audience the catharsis yes. of a first night uh, you know you sort of did your scenes and it was done mm. so that was strange but at the same time it was also beautiful knowing that we were doing something quite unique yeah. and that all the all the backstage madness and nonsense was in full effect uh, one very touching story that one of the stage managers said to me, um, I won't embarrass him by saying who he is, <laughs> but he said, when he saw uh, my name on the cast list, he very nearly got in touch and said, I, I'm not going to do this uh, show. And I said, why? He said, because I don't think I'm going to be able to not hug you when I see you. <laughs> All those things are natural. All those, you know, that camaraderie, the, yes. the years, you know, I've been blessed and privileged to also have worked with a lot of people there for a very long time. And so they they really are friends and, and, and colleagues and to not, to sort of look longingly at each yeah, other. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> you know. We had a similar experience when we were filming uh, The Winter's Tale. The Winter's Tale is such a complex play as it is without that audience there to kind of, I guess, guide you along the way. You know, it's, it's like, a, it's a two-way exactly. thing, isn't it? It's... Exactly. You kind of need that energy bouncing back at you. So, Lucian, let's talk a bit about where you started. So you were born in London, is that correct? That is correct, yeah. And then you moved to Zimbabwe. And then or Tanzania. my... So my, my family are from Tanzania. Okay. 
that is that is my uh, that is my foundation my my mother and my late father uh were here as my father was doing his phd mm. and myself and uh, my late brother the brother who comes immediately after me were born here towards the end of their time just as they were getting ready to head back and so they returned to uh Tanzania via Iraq uh where my father had a teaching post for a couple of years i think we were there for a total of 9 months this was before just before the Iran Iraq war mm. um of the early 80s uh, kicked off and then we returned to Tanzania um i would have been 1983 84 but then zimbabwe came calling at that time zimbabwe was only four years uh independent as it were yeah. and was the boom town of africa it was the boom town of africa and there was an insistence and a great drive from the government at the time to get black african expatriates in to build this beautiful prosperous black african nation mm. and so people from all the other frontline states uh that was zambia mozambique um south africa tanzania uh namibia angola and further afield in places like uh, you know the, the congo kenya there was a, there was a great drive um and so so and my father was was part of that wave and so that's that is how zimbabwe has has become and became a home for me yeah and all of my formative life educational life my theatrical life <laughs> all started there. Well, so what's that like the theater scene in Zimbabwe and, and Africa how was how was that in terms of performing art uh dance drama music you know it is everywhere it's ubiquitous music especially i think uh speaking of Zimbabwe it's it's the currency that everybody you know goes by it's it's everywhere mm. performance is everywhere where there was a disconnect at that time is perhaps there being not so much uh, an appreciation of the industry and so a lot of incredibly amazing actors that i watched growing up were all semi professional they all had quote unquote 9 to 5 jobs but in the evening and at the weekends they were in the rehearsal room doing the thing that that uh, they loved yeah. <laughs> and so there wasn't there was definitely an active scene what we struggled with was the notion of people taking it seriously as a profession right i think that was always a struggle but that is also the case in a small country you know it's a, zimbabwe is a it is a relatively small uh, country and so yeah. there was only so far you could go before you'd have to just leave to spread your wings and do more there was there was a very active uh creative scene but it was very closely allied to politics ah uh, see and that is that was through no fault of any particular artist there were great uh, writers who wanted to put on great plays who were making great plays but the content had to be facing in a particular direction right criticism and freedom as we understand it uh was not <laughs> was not encouraged shall we say you know you might say it's because there was a, a very strong awareness uh within the leadership that you know of the, of the power of art you know of what happens the reach that this has 
the power that it that it has. Absolutely. And on the flip side of that too, there was also, I would say, a fair amount of ignorance <laughs> of you know those in power not realizing that you know this is actually. This is quite something. These, yeah. these are quite amazing individuals who want to be making their art here, who are making their art here. And it is your responsibility to support them. It's a nebulous discussion. And I'm only speaking from my particular uh, purview because I am somebody who people would turn around and say, well, <laughs> you know, you went to quote unquote white schools. You lived in quote unquote white neighborhoods. You had opportunities that other people didn't have. And crudely speaking yes they would be largely uh, correct my parents were educated hard-working people i did go to good schools schools that had the facilities schools that valued arts alongside everything else but that didn't stop many 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 others many other sensational musicians writers actors from different backgrounds who have gone on to become international superstars yeah. but it is the same argument and discussion i think that we have here you know that goes on and that that is still uh, at play yeah. in some ways it's that stratification i think exists everywhere in the world um and it's a question of how how you negotiate it how you break it down and how you genuinely make it accessible yes yeah sure so when did you get that acting buzz according to my mother when i was three years old when she asked me what i wanted to be i said i want to be an actor <laughs> and the reason why i added the r is because this was uh, the days of the incredible hulk on tv so she's very fond of telling that to her grandchildren that that was what your father was like when he was <laughs> Was this in London it, it, or in Zimbabwe? To, to be honest with you, Alfred, there has never been a moment where I haven't not wanted to do it, when, I've, yeah. when I haven't not had a, an interest and a passion. And that's the, this is the key thing. I would always get annoyed reading the autobiographies of, or biographies of, of the great and good actors of different generations who talk of going to... Oh, the nanny took us to see X, Y, and Z, uh, you know, uh, in London's West End. Oh, I saw this uh, on Broadway. I, n I never had that, yeah. but it never bugged me because you know, I would sit glued to the, the, the television screen and wonder, why is he sitting like that? Oh, hang on, that door is open. Why was it closed before? Oh, hang on, that person's hands are in a different place. Oh, that looks weird. Oh, that person's really funny. Oh, why is that? You know, all these these questions. And then when I saw live theatre for the first time, I was like, this is amazing. <laughs> I love this. This is awesome. You know, I remember what I have a very distinct memory of uh, at Avondale Primary School that I went to in, in Harare in Zimbabwe. We had, it was a Friday afternoon and we had, it was a troupe of three actors. I cannot to, to this day remember who they were, but it was a sort of a Friday afternoon thing. There were three actors and they put on the most hysterical pieces of theater I've ever seen in my life. It was it was two two guys and a girl. And literally we were howling with laughter. Absolutely howling with laughter at how and they didn't have any magical props. You know, I, I still have such a clear image in my head of one guy who was a man, a grown man, and he was playing a schoolboy. I have never seen something more funny in my life. <laughs> he was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. I was like, this is, 
this is magical. How how is he doing that? He's a man like my dad, <laughs> but he's playing a schoolboy. This is awesome. <laughs> it has always been there, and that's always been whenever I have the opportunity to you know to speak to those coming up who are at a different part of their journey. I, I always say, look, it's it's always about passion and curiosity. It doesn't matter. Yeah. The end result in that moment is negligible. I was sitting there transfixed and mesmerized going, how are they doing yeah. that? That is so funny. This is amazing. And they look like they're having so much fun. I want to do that. Did you go to drama school or was it a youth theater kind of thing? What, how did that start? I did not train formally as an actor. Everything that I've ever learned I've learned on the job and I've learned in front of paying audiences. Every wow. single mistake I've ever made, every lesson I've learned has been in the full glare of the public. <laughs> you name it, it has happened to me. That is how I've learned. But then the thing is that in support of that, I was always doing school plays, always part of the school choir. I was always part of the drama club. It was, it was always around me. I never had to struggle to have access to it. And that's the, that's, it's the weird dichotomy, I think, of, of growing up in Zimbabwe at that time that because it was considered a part of education, yeah, there was drama school, there was drama club everywhere. Yeah, there were yeah, drama nice. teachers everywhere doing things. The National Institute of Allied Arts, which has a festival every single year um, where, where you compete in all sorts of uh, disciplines from uh, uh, poetry reading to improvised one-act plays. And that's how I learned. We were just doing it all the time, yeah. you know, all the time. So for me, making making the... It, it wasn't until I would say I was maybe 11 or 12 when I remember sitting with my late father, God rest his soul. He was a, a very distinguished and very well-respected doctor true master of his profession. I remember sitting with him <laughs> at the breakfast table and him asking me, so what do you want to do with your life? And it was the first time I ever said the words, you know what? I think I would like to be an actor. And I'll never forget his response. He said, yes, that's very good, but that's a hobby. What do you really want to do with your life? And thus began, dear Alfred, an odyssey that went on for many, many years. <laughs> There are the whole cliches with with the African households. Um, uh, I've definitely had a few of them my way. I can confidently and truly say there were many things I could have done. I had the academic qualifications. I had the capacity to do a lot of things. And um, because of that, there were expectations on me. One being that was not unspoken, but was pretty... But it was pretty clear that I would follow my father into right. his profession. I would be the next Dr. Samati. Or because I really liked art and because I'd once spoken about <laughs> how architecture was interesting. You're like, oh, yeah, well, that means you're going to be an architect then, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I did actually apply for drama schools. Okay. I applied for, at the time, Lambda had a, a program I don't think it exists anymore, but they would conduct certain international auditions. Okay. And they would they would basically come to Zimbabwe, uh, to Harare, to certain schools, and you could, you know, you could take part. And I remember having an, uh, an audition for Lambda. And the man who auditioned me, he was a very nice guy, a 
I'll never forget this. He was very, he was, you know, dressed in, you know, you know, completely wrong for the weather, you know, in a, in a suit and tie. Had his, he had his sort of, you know, hair quiff to one side, very thick glasses. Really nice man. And he said, "You have very good academic results. Are you sure this is what you want to do?" And I said, "Yes." He said, "You do realize that even if you have a modicum of success, that it's a hard life." And I said, "No, no, no. I completely understand. It's it's what I want to do." I never, I don't know whatever happened to that uh, application. I don't even know what <laughs> you know, but I certainly learnt. <laughs> I, I learnt the hard way, <laughs> the truth, that he was absolutely uh, right. So, um, <laughs> I I got into the University of Zimbabwe to study modern languages, uh, French and Portuguese, but at the same time, to put it in cool parlance, my crew, my crew of boys and girls. The people I grew up with in my youth, the loves of my life in so many ways, uh, who are still my friends to this day, we decided let's create a theatre company. Let's make our own theatre company and do our our own thing, and that was my apprenticeship. So I would be a university student by day and an actor by night. Wow, brilliant! Over the edge theatre company, and we were, we were the first professional multiracial theatre company in the country. Wow. I look back now and who we were was quite radical. You know, this is, was still the era of apartheid. Apartheid was still rampant in South Africa, you know. People would literally have their jaws on the floor seeing black, white, brown kids, as kids do, walking hand in hand, laughing with each other, just being stupid teenagers. Yeah. I have such strong memories of people of people literally looking at us like we were lepers it was not seen it was not done the very first production that we did as a company uh, as over the edge was macbeth the oh. scottish play and i played macbeth and my friend sarah norman played lady macbeth i am black she's white it was scandalous wow. that a black man and a white woman kissed on stage it was scandalous, even though it was happening. Of course, yeah. it's been happening. Yeah, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but to put it on stage, yeah, 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 in front of a paying audience, it was a big deal. Yeah, yeah, we were doing some pretty radical stuff. That's brilliant. That's brilliant. So, you know, like you're saying with the Lambda teacher saying, it's going to be a difficult ride. So, what what is it that keeps you going? through especially in the beginning of your career you know the the hardships you face what what are some of the hardships and and how do you how did how did you overcome them well i'm glad you asked that question alfred what were the hardships you know this and i know this here we are we are actors we are artists when you and i talk of of how brutal and fickle and unforgiving the industry can be we know what it's like to pound the pavements going from audition to audition to audition and not getting the gig. We know what it's like to then go, right, I can't make the rent this month. I'm going to have to take up a part-time job. I'm going to have to have um, a side hustle. Not because there's anything wrong with you, not because you are lazy. It's because that is the industry that mm. we live in. There are only, you know, to use a a rather cack-handed football analogy, there are only 11 places in the, in the starting lineup, ever. 
there's only ever going to be 11 places. A lot of the vast majority of people, what they believe our industry is, is the red carpet. Yeah. And glamorous stories and people who make salaries that are as long as a mobile phone number. What the vast majority of people do not realize is quite literally those those performers are less than 1% of all of us who are working all the time. There are plenty of us who make a good, decent living, but it is not for the faint-hearted. I have so many friends who were passionate, talented, dedicated lovers of their art, directors, musicians, actors, who canned it after 10 years because of the uncertainty. And I do not blame anybody who walks away from it because it, it, it is hard. You spend 95% of your time, actually I lie, 98% of your time being rejected, being told no, being told you don't fit this, you don't fit that. And what fits today is not going to fit tomorrow. That is the, the business part of it. The great actor Joe Marcel, better known as Jeffrey from The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but who is, quite frankly, probably one of the greatest unsung actors that this country has ever produced. I remember him saying to me, listen, remember, it is show and it is business. That's not being hard-edged and capitalist and blah, blah, blah. No. Always understand that there is a business side of it and there is, a, there is the show part of it. Sometimes you have to do the business part of it in order for the show to happen. I know that from making my own work. Mm that I would often sit when I when I ran a, a theater for Odzi, Africans and British mm -hmm. theater for, for four and a half years, um, where I sat there going, I'm literally trying to cram as much art as I can through the bureaucracy and the admin. Yeah. But if I don't do that, there's no rehearsal room. Mm. If I don't do that, there is no, there is no uh, play. And in those moments, you, you know, you, <laughs> you understand what, the business side of it means you understand that when you're on sitting on this side of the table and you must remember this alfred as you climb as you grow as you learn remember never take it personally and secondly and more importantly every single one of us who walks into that room the people on the other side of the table are going please be the one please be the one please be the one i've been on both sides of that divide and i have been sitting there going, man, Alfred is amazing. What an amazing actor. But the thing is, he's not going to fit with Everill and with Siobhan. I'm trying to put a puzzle here together. Mm. Alfred is an awesome piece, but he's not going to fit this one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and it's my job to go, okay, what are you, you going to do? Are you At that moment, are you going to go, I owe someone a career? Or are you going to go, I have to serve this work. I have to do right by this work. So yes, so yeah, uh, talking about uh, roles, you obviously played um, Iago in Othello. Of course, we were gonna we were going to talk about this. In many ways, your skin color doesn't matter. He could be anyone, but obviously, traditionally, he's not played by by a black man. So how how was that? How did you come to that idea? In late two thousand and fourteen. I was contacted by a very well-loved, well-respected theatre in, in, in our wonderful country, uh, a very well-respected, well-liked director, 
who basically said, listen, we would we are thinking of doing Othello. And we are thinking of actor X to play the role of Iago. I was like, I fell off my chair, like, amazing, wow, yeah. Um, and we're thinking of you playing uh, Othello. And it took me all of 30 seconds to make my decision. And I said, thank you very much for the opportunity and for thinking of me. But I'll be honest with you, I have 0% interest in playing Othello. There's nothing about the role of Othello that interests or excites me. However, if you're interested in looking at the role of Iago, then we're going to have a conversation. That's the only role I'm interested in. Fast forward some weeks later, and my agent, the, the great Leslie Duff, says to me, <laughs> be careful what you wish for. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, the RSC, uh, looking to do Othello, Hugh Kwashi, is playing Othello, Iqbal Khan is directing, and they want to do a sort of a workshop reading, working of it, because they are thinking of Iago being played by a black actor. And as far as they're concerned, they would like you to, to do that. We did the workshop, and we knew within about uh, five lines that it would work. Mm. Now, here's something that's, that a lot of people don't know. Pardon my language. During that workshop, I was absolutely shit. I wanted to prove myself so, so hard and that I completely, I overshot. And then Iki Iqbal, the director, at one point said, can you, can you try it with a London accent? Now, of the many gifts that the gods have given me, <laughs> um, I cannot for the life of me, and I say this with respect, like the, the, the London accent just escapes me. <laughs> But hey, you know what? I was in the zone. I did it. It was absolutely terrible. It was woeful. It was horrible. I was embarrassed. I was like, yeah, well, I think they're going to go the other way. But he said, no, no, no. No, it's you. Don't worry. It's it, it's you. Um, and after we'd worked together, I said, do you remember how terrible I was with that particular act? And he said, yes, you were. But the thing was, you were so committed and the thing is, your capacity or ability as an actor was never in doubt. We had already seen that bit. The rest was just working out details. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I took it on. I made an absolute point of going, if I'm going to do this, I need to up my game. Ditch this idea of the sacred Shakespearean cow. We are not conservatives of some estate. We are artists. We are mischief makers. We are magic makers. All I care about is what is on the page. I don't care what Sir Dame Lord whoever did in 18 whatever the flip. I don't care. It's got nothing to do with me. It's got absolutely nothing to do with me. How can it? If I spend my life, my career, worrying about that, I will do nothing interesting. Mm. I will not find the magic for myself. And that's the thing. These, these, have, these, these pieces, I believe, have survived in part because whatever magic, brilliance they have is there. And you will play amazing roles. There will be a million others after us who are going to take the material and do whatever they're going to do with it. You know, if it does not hold water here and now for me, if I cannot interrogate it as a, as a living, breathing, work, working artist now, then let's kick it to the curb. And I think that is especially important with the particular issues that Othello is all about. Yeah. You know, you cannot escape the fact that this is a play that was written by 
a white man whose idea of a black person was to put, put boot polish on their face mm -hmm. and to behave in a certain way. You can't escape that. And it is absolutely my right, my responsibility, my privilege, my joy to kick it and to question it and to challenge it. It will not be broken if, you know, by us interrogating, by us uh, trying, but it will be compromised if we're inconsistent. And I believe part of the rigor of it is being consistent. In our research, we <laughs> happen to have come across that you have an irrational fear of camels. Can you tell me about that? So all the origin of it is in the very, very brief time as a child that my family lived in Iraq, in the Middle mm. East, I do not know where we were going. All I remember is that it was very early in the morning. I know that I was we're in the back of a very cramped taxi. I had fallen asleep on my mother's shoulder. And when I opened my eyes, I looked out of the window. The car was literally surrounded by <laughs> Camels. <laughs> it was surrounded by you see, even as I'm saying, like but like I'm getting I'm getting goosebumps. <laughs> it was the way that their skin was pressed up against the windows. It was just there was just camelness everywhere. <laughs> and and ever, ever since that time, Alfred, I kid you not, camels freak me the bleep out. Fair the, enough. The going to the zoo. Right when I was <laughs> taking taking my ch children to the London Zoo, when they were really small, we would get to a point where I would say to their mother, "Okay, um, we're getting close to the camel enclosure. I'm gonna go around the other way, and I'll meet you on the other side because I can't. I literally, I I can't walk past them. Like when when they appear on TV, you know, I still. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I'm sometimes like, no, no, are they gone? Are they gone? Are they gone? And the thing is, I can completely see th the funny side of it. Yeah. But they really, they truly freak me out. <laughs> truly freak me out. That is my kryptonite. If you want to break me down, get a, put a camel at my front door. I will die. <laughs> I will die. That will be the end of me. I will die. Okay, Lucian, wow. It's been brilliant talking to you. One last question. Who, real or fictional, would you like to have an interval drink with and why? And I think I'm going to, let's spice it up a little bit. I, I, I'm going to give you a rule. You can't say an artist. So not an actor or a director or a writer or anything like that. This is going to be controversial. Okay. But it's the, it is the one, it's, it's, when you ask the question, that's the only name that's popped up. Robert Mugabe, the late president of Zimbabwe. It's not with fondness, but there's a part of me that wants to sit with him and go, okay, have your pineapple juice. I'm going to have a lager. Please tell me what the, f <laughs> what? Make me understand, please. Tell me. Yeah. Tell me. So that's, that's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that's my controversial choice, but it's the only one. That's a great choice. That is a brilliant, brilliant choice. Oh, Lucian, 
it's been such an honor and a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much uh, for doing this. Cheers, Alfred. It has been it's been my pleasure, man. Really, truly, and honestly. I hope we get to play together properly someday yes, soon. Someday, someday. Well, all the best, sir. And you too, mate. You too. Join us next week where RSC creative Nancy Harris will be flagging down best-selling author Kate Camillo in the bar and asking her, single or double? Remember, you can listen again to past episodes on the Royal Shakespeare Company website. Just search RSC Interval Drinks. Mm-hmm.